Welcome back to Supreme Myths. This is episode 20, uh, which is kind of special. And to celebrate how special this episode is, I have um, a guest I've been wanting to have on since I started this. Um, Father William uh, Daly is here. He is the director of the Newman Center for Faith and Reason at Notre Dame in Ireland, I believe, if I have that correct. I used to be. I moved back here in the summer. In in the year 2020, it's easy to miss these things. So I'm actually back at Notre Dame in South Bend now. Okay. Um, and uh, I run a residence hall, and I'm trying to write a book on faith and reason. So it's a very timely invitation from you. Excellent. Well, uh, I, but I did run a Center for Faith and Reason for the last four years in Ireland. Yeah. Okay, we're going to talk about Sorry faith about and reason in a minute. Um, you graduated Notre Dame Summa Cum Laude and all kinds of honors. You went to Columbia Law School, where I understand you were a student of my blogger-in-chief, Mike Dorf, <laughs> which is, makes this all a small, small world. Um, when Mike was at Columbia, he's at Cornell now. Uh, you clerked for the Ninth Circuit, um, and you are very active and honest and engaging on Twitter. Um, we disagree a lot on things, but I like to think we disagree with respect and civility almost all the time. <laughs> it's I do, I, at least you do it all the time. I do it almost all the time. <laughs> Put it that way. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I didn't know it was going to be number 20, so that's <laughs> it is number special. It, it is special. Um, I usually start by asking my guests to give me three myths about whatever they're experts in. Uh, it's usually law, but not always. And we're not going to discuss a lot of law today because I'm really – I have some questions about faith that I think you're the right person to ask. But give me three myths, if you have them, about faith, you know, the church, religion, any, anything in that general area. Three myths. Um Let's see. One is that uh, believers find belief easy tends to be a myth that some people have, including many people of faith. Um, We can talk about that. Um, But uh, doubt is a part of human life just as much as belief is a part of human life for everyone, I'm going to argue, irrespective of what it is that we profess to believe in and not to believe in and to doubt uh, or not to doubt. Um, So that would be one myth. one of my good friends who uh, often presents as a militant atheist, though he tells me he's a militant agnostic. He's a bartender in New York called Phil Ward and a kind of genius. Grew up in Pittsburgh and, and became a real New York personality. He, uh, the first two times we met, oh, I was dressed like this and we were at a bar in New York called Death and Company late at night after the bars had closed. And um, I was just chatting with my friends as they cleaned up and he came in as a former bartender there and had privileges to be there while people cleaned up as well. And without saying a word to me or that he knew me or knew who I was, he simply said, you know what I hate about religious people? And I said, no, I guess I'm going to find out. (laughs) He said, "Um, uh, you act like you know something the rest of us don't know. And and then the next week, he said the same thing to me. And I said, you know, you said that to me last week. And uh, he was sober on both occasions, as I was. And I said... "Um, I hope that if we're doing things right, uh, we live as if we hope for things you have ceased to hope for. So that might be a version of the first myth, uh, but it's a little bit different because it has to do with a sense, I suppose, of um, the status of what we think of our beliefs. Sure. Um, What is a third myth um, about religious people? I, you know, um, I guess that we have simplistic views about the relationship between the scientific picture of the world and our own picture of the world. Um, Now, there are religious people who do, right? So, I mean, you're going to be getting in our exchange, which is a friendly exchange and neither an interrogation or a lecture, right? Um, The views of a Catholic priest in 2020 who grew up in the Midwest and who studied law. 
Um, and so what is my expertise? I don't have many expertises. Uh, I taught jurisprudence, but I'm not a scholar of jurisprudence. I haven't published in it. Published one academic article on separation of powers. I'm happy to talk about those things in other contexts. Happy that you don't want to talk about law today. That's just fine. But I don't try to hold myself out as a senior scholar in any legal field. I think I can responsibly teach legal ethics and jurisprudence uh, as I have been asked to do on occasion. I have also taught immigration, which is much harder to teach responsibly, I think, even if you practice it, because it's really tough. Yeah. It changes every hour. Yeah. Um, so that's the legal side of me. What are my theological qualifications? I'm not a, an academic theologian, but uh, I have to be a practical theologian. I preach uh, as is part, uh, at the heart of what I do. I teach uh, in that role as any priest does. So my degree to do that is a master's of divinity degree which is both within Catholic and Protestant Christianity, the standard kind of ministerial professional degree. You could sure. think of it as the JD of theological degrees. Okay. Um, that well, that, that, there's a lot to unpack there. That, but let me just start, I think, with your first one to some degree and also okay. what is obviously part of your expertise, and that's faith and reason. And, and one of the reasons I want to start there is purely selfish. You know, I titled my book Originalism is Faith. And I did mm -hmm. that for some very specific reasons, even though I'm not a person of faith, and we'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. But so, so, so I have to say, for most of my life, and this is oversimplifying a little bit, I view faith and reason as two different categories. It's not faith and reason; it's faith or reason, uh, to me. Um, and I so so tell me what the relationship is between faith. I assume you don't agree with that. So tell me tell me the relationship between faith. Well, and look, reason. We we use both terms. Uh, uh, in, in an encyclical that St. John Paul II wrote, Fides et Ratio, he speaks of them as two wings uh, that the human bird needs for flight, right? So they can be distinguished, but they're in a relationship because they're part of human uh, knowing and willing and the things that, you know, we apply labels to the stuff that our brains do. And um, I don't think you really think it's faith or reason. That is to say, you probably have faith in how your uh, spouse and your children are going to respond to you as you might grow old and have needs in the future or what they're going to answer when you, uh, I'm already when you say, what should I make for dinner? And so is it, is it unreasonable for you to have faith? Do you have knowledge of how they're going to respond? No, they can behave monstrously in ways you don't expect them to. But you wouldn't say that your predictions about them, right? I'm not saying that's the same as religious faith, right? But, but a belief and a hope upon which one acts can be rooted in reason and in a reasonable response to the reality that impinges upon our consciousness without being identical with reason. And that's the way I think of religious faith, right? What, what religious faith is, um, is reason's response. Uh, and we'll, you know, however you want that conversation to unfold, I, I tend to talk about, and as I've announced on Twitter to hold myself to a standard, I hope that at the age of 50 and a year and a half from now, I, I have a book ready to publish on faith and reason. And my essential approach to it, which I don't claim to be original, is that faith is the best response in reason to our challenge as human beings to respond to our desire for love, our desire for morality and meaning, which I think are part of, of love, because I think of love as just divine activity. So when we think about what's most real for us and what we most want our lives to be built around, I think we've traditionally in the Christian tradition called that love. 
and love is God and ordering one's life in response to that desire at the heart of ourselves is what faith requires if one is is responding in a religious way to it. But that seems to me uh, of, of the same species as the faith that you place in your marriage, the faith that you place in your friendships, which isn't the same as knowledge and isn't the same as reason. Well, that's fascinating. So I, I, um, I think I would push back a little bit on the family hypothetical or anyone similar like similar hypotheticals in this way. I, when I expect, I mean, my wife does surprise me a lot. I surprise her a lot. I think all spouses surprise their spouses a lot. Um, but when I predict her behavior about something, it's because I have physically seen her react in similar ways in the past. So, for example, I know my wife likes orchards better than she likes roses. <laughs> if I were, but but that's. I made that reasoned judgment based on visual or other kinds of on the ground experiences with my wife. I don't know you, what the you will place. You will place faith or trust. Let's take a different example one that John Henry Newman uses. Um, he speaks of faith as trust. So you go to your doctor. You know that your doctor is at some points going to be relying on medical information that will change. So it will be wrong. But you're not going to do the work of sorting out which is right and which is wrong. You're going to trust that your doctor is sorting it out better than you would. That trust isn't is an act of reason, but trust isn't the same thing as reason. Now, you might say, well, religious faith isn't as warranted as trust in my doctor. And we can talk about that. But when you say I think of faith and reason as either or, I don't think that's quite right. You may think that my faith in God is a foolish faith because it doesn't have the same warrant. But as a phenomenon of the human brain, it is one in which you, in fact, engage. You just don't place the faith in the institution of the church or in sacred scripture or in God. Right. But you do place in the in the College of Medicine who has put a certificate on your, you know, okay. doctor's door. Fa right. fa fair enough. I, I do think, you know, if my doctor had fit at 100, my, my faith in my doctor depends on a lot of factors, some of which are empirical, but you're right. Some of which are not. There's no. Sure, but I'm, I'm going to say the same thing about my religious faith, and we can talk about whether you think those are sufficient or not. I'm, yeah. You know, nothing that I expect to say to you or to anyone in life is going to be uh, what we would call in philosophy a demonstration, right? So demonstrations are very rare in life. Within within the limited domain of a certain kind of geometry, we can say that parallel lines don't intersect. But of course, there's non-Euclidean geometry. Famously on Twitter, we sure. both spend too much time on Twitter for our own good. People have been arguing about whether two plus two is really four, right? <laughs> and there's a whole lot of cleverness involved in that. But um, uh, very few things in life, even two plus two is four, if there's some reason people enjoy that debate on Twitter, it's that arguments in the nature of demonstration, where you and I can say uh, without, that no one could walk away from this without seeing the clarity and the truth of things are rarer in life that we would like to believe. I agree. I think no, they're simpler if most things were of the nature of demonstration. So I don't expect that if I do maximally well today, <laughs> you're going to walk away and say, when can I sign up to be a Catholic? Though I hope someday you'll say, hey, when can I sign up to be a Catholic? Well, so, me, you know, me, all of these things are contingent and reformable judgments. Let me throw at you a reasoned-based argument about faith, um, which I wonder... I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your response, and I'm, I'm wondering what combination of reason and faith it'll be. So I did some research. Now, this is all Internet research, so this, yep. is, not, this is not scholarly research. So I, you know, um, but 
unless the internet has fooled me, which is possible, um, it turns out, and this is true for Jews and Catholics, but I'm going to use Catholic data, but whatever data is for Catholic, it's, it's even more or less for Jews. So sure. um, Ch- China is less than 1% Catholic, India less than 2%, Russia 0.1%. Um, and Japan also less than 1%, I believe. When we add up China, India, Russia, and Japan, when we add that up, we get to 3 billion people. Mm-hmm. And we get to less, much less than 1% of those 3 billion being Catholics, and then much, 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 much less of that being Jews. So, and, and, and let me privilege this, let me, let me predicate this question based on a personal experience. And, and I hope you don't, I don't, hope you don't mind. This is more about you, but just so the, the listeners know where I'm coming from. My, my, my parents made me get bar misfit against my will. I never felt Jewish, didn't think I was Jewish. I didn't go to Hebrew school until I was fifth grade. I rebelled against the whole thing. My parents said you could quit Hebrew school after your bar mitzvah, but only if you go tell the rabbi why. So I had my bar mitzvah, uh, and then I went to the rabbi, and I had learned in my social studies class there were a billion people in China back then. This is a long time ago, but still. And mm-hmm. I asked the rabbi, I don't understand how we can be the chosen people, which I always hated anyway, when there's a billion, a billion people in China who don't care about us either way. It's not that they're anti-Semitic mm-hmm. or they're pros. They just don't care. They're indifferent. When I, I am very confused how faith in a certain religion can withstand the idea that there are three mm-hmm. billion people in different cultures of whom almost none are Catholics. How do we deal with mm-hmm. that? Why, I mean, what <laughs> that strikes yeah, me as, I, I, as, as a, a very it's important. It's a perfectly sensible it's a perfectly sensible question and objection. I think anyone would have it um, in life. Um, and I think it's a kind of inescapable human question about anything that one in life believes deeply that other people either today or across history haven't believed, right? Epistemic humility is something you will have noticed I tweet about from time to time. And that's to remind myself to have it, not, not to scold others. But we have to have it about all kinds of things. Like, I would love to say that if I had been alive um, at the nation's founding, I would have been among the earliest and the most ardent abolitionists, given all the things I know about myself if I transplant myself in history. I I can't say that, right? So the things that I believe and believe passionately right now are a product of when and where I was born and who my teachers were and what I have read and how I have reflected sometimes better and sometimes worse upon all of those things. And I can't make an apology for that. And I have to recognize the contingency of those things that I believe and therefore be not judgmental about people who weren't born in the same place and at the same time and blessed by the same teachers and and the same experiences. Um, And so the beginning of an answer is simply that a beautiful, frustrating fact about human life is its particularity. And this is a beautiful, frustrating fact about all kinds of things that philosophers, if we take the question of religion out of it entirely, have found frustrating, right? Um, If we think of all the silliness, in my view, philosophical silliness around trolley problems and so forth, uh, they have to do often with this problem of particularity. Do you owe more obligation to your wife and to your daughters than to poor people in Africa? We think most of us, what we would call decent human beings, even if We have a very expansive category of what that means, and you and I include each other in it, though we disagree about some very important things. Uh, We know we owe something to those people in Africa. We know that we give a lot more to the people around us. That particularity is hard to justify. 
it's a species. It's a subset of the same problem with religion. And so I, I understand why there's a sense in which it's offensive, as you suggested, uh, that you react, uh, you bridle against the idea of a chosen people. But starting right there is a good place to start. What's the inoffensive possibility, right? If we think that there's a possibility that you shouldn't bridle against the idea of the Jews as a chosen people, that God, in God's wisdom, has to deal with human beings where we are. And we are situated people who unfold in history. And we are not living in eternity. We are not, um, we do not possess the view from nowhere, to borrow a phrase from the philosopher Thomas Nagel. And since none of us possesses the view from nowhere, not those three billion Chinese, not you down there in Georgia, not me here in South Bend, Indiana, then we have to have epistemic humility, but it's an inescapable situation. And so belief and unbelief are, it seems to me, both have to answer for that fact. So I love the phrase epimistic um, uh, humility, you said? Epistemic humility. Yeah. yeah, I love that phrase. Um, and I think you know me well enough to know that that's kind of my view about constitutional law. Like we need to all yeah. be, you know, humble about, you know, a lot of things about constitutional law. Um, but, but I guess I was under the impression, an un, maybe an uneducated impression, that there, there is a sense in which Catholics, some Catholics, mm-hmm. think Catholicism is the one true faith in a way that I'm not sure is true in Judaism. I mean, chosen people. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what's true for other religions. Yeah. I believe it's the one true faith. Right. But what do, I mean, I hope that you believe that the things that you believe are true, and that the things that I believe that you don't believe are false. So, like, what choice does any human being have except to say that, to the best of my knowledge and ability, the stuff that I say is true. I believe is true, and to the extent you disagree with it, I think you're wrong. But that, but that, so that's that's fascinating. So, so, so you know, I am that. not an atheist. I, I am an yeah. I, I am I am an agnostic, a, a very serious agnostic, um, and I I think, and now we're going to get maybe into a hard area, a harder area. Um, the reason I rebel against all, most or all traditional religions, is if. Epistemic, if, if humility was the calling card of traditional organized religion, I would feel much better about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure it is. And, and, and I think that plays out in, in a lot of nefarious ways in America sometimes. I totally agree with you on that. Okay. That's nice to hear. <laughs> Thank you. So, so that's so. so I, don't, I, don't, I like to say, if, if you mind, I'll just I'll give my little gloss on yeah, that. It's not yeah. to the exact point, yeah. but I like to say one thing that you know you were raised within Judaism. You did your bar mitzvah. I'm sure there was a lot of study involved in that. Yeah. So you've read lots of the Hebrew scriptures, the Christian scriptures, which are much shorter, are of a similar thread in the following sense: the sort of spine of the Christian scriptures begins chronologically with the letters of Saint Paul. All of those letters are St. Paul writing back saying, you idiots, didn't you see the way I lived? I gave myself to others. I wasn't arrogant. I put Christ before everything. I I cared about the poor. I didn't get involved in licentiousness and drunkenness. Why is he writing this to them? Because they're doing all that stuff. And what happens in the Hebrew scriptures? The prophets have to keep coming and saying, we're not being faithful to who we were. So the entire scripture, one might say, if there's one big theme there, it's that religious people are hypocrites and they have to stop being hypocrites. That's God's message to them if we believe that scripture is God's message to God's people. So 
Uh, not only is that not an unreasonable observation, it's the essential observation, it seems to me, of the formal scriptures of both the Jewish and the Christian traditions. There's lots Jews and Christians disagree with in their about in terms of the interpretation of scripture, but I don't see how one can avoid that the narrative is at least truth in advertising. We say, join us, here's this book that'll tell you about our history, and all it tells you is our history of not living up to the things that we say are true. Okay, um, that I, I, I think that's a great response. Um, I guess let's talk real life, but not from a legal perspective. So the sure. baker who won't make a cake for a same-sex couple, the florist who won't do the flowers. Now, I'm not now. Let me be clear. I, I I don't want this conversation to include hypotheticals where a poet has to actually go to the wedding or a musician is forced to play at a wedding because I think those mm-hmm. raise some different issues. But people who aren't willing to participate before the fact. You know, in a way, or, or <laughs> not in the actual wedding place, but you know, um, you understand what I'm saying. To me, yep. what I my understanding of of who Jesus was and what he stands for would have would be he would say to that baker and he would say to that florist, you if you're offended by the two men getting married, that's even a that's more of a reason to participate with them. To love thy neighbor, to to embrace, mm-hmm. not a reason. We may disagree on this next wording, but you shouldn't shut them out. You shouldn't shun them. That that that's 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 not what Jesus would do. Mm-hmm. Where am I wrong there? I uh, I don't know that you're wrong. Um, so we've talked about this a little bit on Twitter. I'm happy to talk yeah. about it now and again, apart from a legal perspective. Yeah. I wouldn't say to a baker, "Don't bake a cake." What do I say to a baker who is probably not a Catholic? I'm not aware of Catholic bakers who aren't baking. Fair enough. These are usually people from what we call lower church. And what we mean by that isn't um, dumber or worse. It's it's their, their uh, but they are, tend to be more fundamentalist, which yes. I would say is a less reasonable approach yeah. to the faith. But um, so uh, at least that's my sense of who, who are the bakers who don't want to do this. Uh, I don't, uh, if they were coming to me, I'd say it's okay to bake that cake. Um, there might be Catholic priests who disagree. I'm not aware of the Catholic principle that I'm violating by saying it's okay to bake the cake. Uh, I think it is okay to bake the cake. Um, If a person says, I don't want to bake that cake, to me, the question is more important as a kind of social legal question, which is, what's the room we have for pluralism to see that as a non-hateful act? So the conversation, both in law and in society, immediately moves to hatred and bigotry, when in fact, uh, I think it's entirely possible, and I know lots of people, including myself, right? I don't do gay marriages, and I can't. If a Catholic friend of mine who is gay, and I have plenty, says, I want you to do my wedding in the church, I want you to defy the church, I'm going to tell them no. My best friend from college, when he came out of the closet to me, the means of which was that in a private conversation when I was a seminarian, I said, hey, so-and-so, are you gay? And he said, yeah, how did you know? And I pointed out that he had moved to DuPont Circle and had started, had lost a lot of weight and was buying Paul Smith clothes when he had normally been content to dress in, in like Old Navy. And it was a kind of jokey set of observations, but he thought it was funny. And he's like, actually, come to think of it, how did it take you so long? And then he said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I, I am a son of the church. I do believe in the church's teaching. I think that your highest calling is not to have sex with people. And you're probably not going to see that. And we're going to remain friends, and we'll have that conversation as often as you want to have it. But I'm not going to make a condition of our friendship that you agree with me. 
I'm not going to, to um, make it the constant subject of our conversation. If you want to approach me as either a friend or as a priest in that way, we will have that conversation and I'll speak to you as best and as lovingly as I can. And when I said this to his non-believing, non-Catholic partner some years later who said, I don't understand how you guys have maintained a friendship, I explained to him why the church thinks that gay people are not supposed to be having sex. He said, you know, that teaching makes a lot of sense and it's obviously loving and it might even be true. And now I understand. And we're all good friends today, right? Do they live by the church's principles? They don't. Do I have priest friends and lay friends who think I probably should be more distanced from them in my private life? I do have people who think my judgment is too capacious there. So you're hearing from a person that may be more liberal than you expected on this question. I have no trouble saying to them, we are friends and I will love you to the end. And we may never come to an agreement about your sex life. But my goodness, whoever woke up in the morning saying, I have to review my list of friends and right. make sure that we all agree about who's supposed to have sex with. Right? Right. Nobody wakes up wondering whether I'm giving them permission to have sex, which gives me the freedom to disagree with them about yeah. when they. But, think but they Father, I'm not. Hold on, I have to interrupt because yeah. I, I, my my lifetime experience. And I wandered from your original question, so. No, that's okay. My, my life. No, I want to go back to something you just said because this is really um, deeply personal in a way to me, um, and, and I think to a lot of people. Oh, first of all, I appreciate your candor and I appreciate your, your um, very welcome willingness to put aside the church's teachings and your personal relationships with other people. I think that's really commendable, and I, and I, I, I do. Um, I, I, this, the story I'm going to tell has been told a million times, but I had a close friend in college a long time ago, long before, gay, you know, long before gay rights were as serious as they are now. But he was Catholic, mm-hmm. very religious, and he was gay. And he almost committed suicide. On several you know, occasions, he thought about it. Um, he was torn. It sounds like talking with someone. I'm like sorry, a Father. Suicide... Stop. I said suicide, and my phone went off. I don't know what that. Uh, it was. It's on silent. Anyway, um, my friend in college was torn in half between his Catholicism and his sexual orientation, and I think there are hundreds of thousands, if not more, millions of Americans may be trapped in that paradox. Why can't the Catholic Church do more to help that suffering? Because it is suffering, Father. I totally agree. I mean, so in the, in, the, in the 1990s, I believe, the Catholic bishops came out with a document called Always Our Children. And uh, so I had just been ordained in 2000, a deacon. So I started preaching in churches. You start as a deacon spend about a year as a deacon, eight months, something like that. So 2001, I was ordained a priest. Somewhere in that period, late 90s or early 2000s, the church came out with a document called Always Our Children, which was a teaching for Catholic parents to say, yes, the church believes that our gay children are not supposed to have sex. It also believes there are children, there are brothers and sisters, we have to love them, and we have to do a better job if we're ever going to to help people to see what we say is true, it first has to be that we say it in love, right? And has the church failed to do that or failed to understand the demands of love? Absolutely it has. So when you say, why isn't the church doing enough? I share that frustration, but it isn't as if the church hasn't been teaching. First, I would say eternally, right? The When we reflect hard enough, we realize that from the start, it was pretty clear in St. Paul that he had misgivings about slavery, right? Something like that. But it takes Christians a long time. It's like it takes human beings and in history and societies a long time to, we might say, uh, work ourselves pure with respect to the what we actually say we believe. 
And so you're not wrong to make that observation. It is a, um, it's a, it's an absolute urgent truth. It is more important right now, and I have been saying this for the entirety of my priesthood, that gay people within the church and outside of the church know that the church affords their dignity and loves them and sees it than that they know that we teach that they're not supposed to have sex, right? That teaching can only make sense to people who understand and believe and have experienced the love that we have, if it will ever be seen and, and embraced by them. And it is by some, right? You will have noticed perhaps that from time to time on Twitter, I say that one group, if we're supposed to believe in diversity, especially sexual diversity, one group that's quite put upon are faithful Catholic gays. Yeah. Like there's, there's a woman, uh, Eve Tushnip. She's the daughter of a famous law professor whom you know. Uh, and He's my man- father, he she was my doesn't mentor. like to be- Father, father Mark Tushnip yeah. was my mentor from a very early right. age. And she, she doesn't like to be used as a prop, and I don't want to use her as a prop. But she's someone who's known to you, at least by who she is and where she sit, fits in life, who came out in college as a lesbian and who converted, I believe, within the same short period of time to Catholicism and who believes that the church's sexual teaching is true and would agree with what you said and says passionately and consistently the church has to do better at loving gay people. And I, I agree with what you said. I agree with her and I agree with the church, you know, as she does. So but she's in a really small put upon group. You, you might imagine. No, thank you. That's a thoughtful answer. I, I There's a part of me that wishes more priests had that same response. I'm not sure where you are in the majority minority of, of that response. Um, so, according, not according to you, but according to the church's teachings, am I going to hell? No, okay. not to my knowledge, okay. for, for <laughs> a variety not, of reasons. Right, not, not for – that was a terrible question. I'm sorry. Assuming I've committed um, no acts of heinousness that you know of, but, but the fact so that I'm the, agnostic – The church, first of all, doesn't teach – the church doesn't teach that anyone in particular is in hell. Okay. Because okay. judgment is reserved to God alone. Okay. The church teaches that certain things are the kinds of things that would subject one to hell. Uh, the thing that most consistently in our tradition, certainly in our scripture, is would, would be indifference to the poor, right? So if you were to say to me, Father, not as me, Eric Siegel, who presumably you were saying as an agnostic yes. person raised outside of the church and yes. who is still outside of the church and who disagrees with lots of things the church teaches, am I going to hell? No, if you had said, Father, as a person who's consistently indifferent to the poor and who has heard that I'm supposed to care about the poor— but I really just refuse to. Am I going to hell? I'm still going to say I can't say you're going to hell. But you've really, by what the church teaches, placed yourself in that category of people who, if you cared about what the church taught, is really risking going to hell. Because the one thing Jesus says most often, most clearly, is what are you going to be judged on? When I was hungry, you gave me to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the people uh, who's, who, whom he writes, so he has this myth at the end of Matthew's gospel, and he says he's going to separate them like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the sheep, he says, welcome into my kingdom because you did all these things. And they say, when did we ever find you naked and needing clothing? And when did we ever find you hungry and needing food? And he says, whenever you did it for the least of mine, you did it for me. Right. And those who are going to hell say, well, we didn't know that. And he says, when you refuse to do it to the least of mine, you refuse to do it to me. In that is why the West believes that slavery is wrong and that uh, human beings are equal, right? As, as, as uh, Tom Holland has put out in his book, Dominion, as Jeremy Waldron argued, uh, you know, and, and just as a matter of intellectual history, 
we wouldn't have our commitment to a polity in the legal and philosophical traditions in the West in the ways that we do without the work of John Locke. And there's no question that John Locke's commitment to equality grew out of his Christian faith. Whether one thinks that speaks to the truth or the falsity of Christian faith is a separate matter. As a historical matter, it's true. And, um, and those teachings come straight from the, where, where Jesus does talk in a judgmental way about heaven and hell. It's about that. It's about indifference to the poor. So that's a really thoughtful answer, Father. Thank you. I'm, I'm, um, again, I, I've had experiences with other people of faith who are less clear <laughs> about my future than you, than you just articulated, but that, that's okay. All right, let's move on to a, a really touchy, hard subject and one that I really got in trouble for that this weekend on Twitter, and that's women in the priesthood. Um, okay. I didn't because, see that you got in trouble for it, so. Uh, I, I, well, I'm just going to say it. I mean, there was a female law professor who thought I had no right to discuss this topic, being neither Catholic nor male. Um, <laughs> we had it was a, it was a hard exchange. But leaving that aside, more female. Okay. Um, so, I think I have two questions. First of all, might tell me if I'm wrong. My uh, three questions: Am I wrong that I that I think Jesus had twelve apostles? They were all men. And it was assumed from that point forward that priests would be men. And there is a strong historical, you know, this is, I don't know if you would defend this today by modern values. The reason women aren't priests has a lot of strong historical content to it. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. Okay. So, so I think the whole question is, a, is, is complicated by history in a variety of ways that I'm happy to talk to you about. Okay. But, but okay. Um, so then I, I – so I – this might – you may know this from Twitter or not, but I spent most of my time at the Department of Justice defending aid to parochial schools. <laughs> um, and I did it alongside a man named Charles Wilson who's passed away who was a Williams and Connolly lawyer and was the general – and was the lawyer for the United States Catholic Conference. We would fly from Washington to San Francisco where the case was all the time together um, and we talked all the time. And um, – he was Justice Warren's law clerk for Flass versus Cohen and has great stories about that. But I, he told me stories about that that I've passed on. That's not why, what I want to talk about. So we, he, he actually was divorced. And we were flying one day talking about homosexuality. And uh, he said what you said earlier to some degree. He said, you know, there's nothing it, – it, it's about the sex act. It's not about the person. And, and I – so, okay. Um, and then we talked about women being priests. Um, and then we talked about his divorce. And I said, how can you be a devout Catholic and be divorced? <laughs> I'm a little confused by that. And his answer is the same answer Jewish people give me all the time about things they do because of their faith, but other rules of their faith they don't apply. They don't abide by. This is, you know, this is true, especially for, I think, American Jews all the time. Isn't it time we made women priests? I mean, isn't it time that we said the history is complicated, but things change? Most American Catholics do not abide by many of the rules of the church. Why do we have to have this one? Uh, so is, I think that you, you phrased it in a beautiful way. Isn't it time that we do X? Yeah. And this goes back to a point I made at the start with all kinds of things. There's a lot of contingency in human history. And there are Catholics who would say that what I'm about to say is a mistake. I don't think they can give an authoritative point of view about that. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to do this as perspicuously as possible. 
in we have a doctrine of infallibility within the church, as you may have heard, and, and, uh, and that doctrine doesn't mean that if the Pope says the Steelers are going to win the Super Bowl. We believe as Catholics that the Steelers will win the Super Bowl. It, it's a very complicated doctrine arising out of internal disputes about theology, but it's it's a belief that God has made things fundamentally reliable within the church because we know that the human beings who occupy these roles, including the popes, are fundamentally unreliable being human. And we've got lots of examples of really bad popes and, and so on and so forth. So um, uh, popes in whom one could have no confidence they were going to heaven. And so so we have this, this doctrine. And from time to time, people wonder about a given teaching, is it infallible or not? And that question arose about the teaching uh, that women cannot be priests. In the 1980s, St. John Paul II clearly seemed to want to say, this is an infallible teaching. And there is a way that a pope can kind of put particular stamps and vocabulary around a teaching to declare it infallible. We, we say in a, that it's called speaking ex cathedra, from the chair. It is giving the full weight of his office to a teaching. That didn't happen. What did happen is his chief theological consultor, Cardinal Ratzinger, who became his successor, Pope Benedict XVI, put out a teaching in his role as the chief theologian, official theologian of the church, the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, CPF, you may have heard of it. Um, uh, it began as the Inquisition, interesting historical fact, um, the office of the Inquisition. So he put out something saying, hey, I'm writing this in the presence of the Pope, and he's agreeing with my writing it, and I am saying that this is an infallible teaching. And he was asked to comment on the status of that document, because that's not one of the official ways that a teaching is declared infallible. But it's close. It's the chief theologian of the church saying, the Pope's here watching me write this. And Pope Benedict XVI, while he was still Cardinal Ratzinger, I believe, was asked about that document. And he said, more or less, it was a fallible declaration that this is an infallible teaching. Now, you're a lawyer. You can appreciate the nuance of his response. I think the only way we can look at the nuance of his response is that he was saying to John Paul and to me, we don't think this is a teaching that can change. But we're not we're not actually putting the official formal seal that if it ever were a cha to change, which we don't think it will, then that will shake people's faith in the infallibility of the papacy. Does that all sort of make sense from a kind of legal thread? So I believe that it is still permissible for Catholics without being what we call cafeteria Catholics, the ones who say, well, yeah, the church says you can't get divorced, but I do. Um, you don't have to be a cafeteria Catholic in my view. So I invited uh, a wonderful woman from Northern Ireland, a kind of heroic woman who was made a Baroness the new fashioned way. She applied to Whitehall and she had done such marvelous work in reconciling Catholics and Protestants in her role as the first police ombudsman for the North um, that they made her a Baroness. So she's now in the House of Lords. And I had her come and speak to my church about her experience as a woman in the church. Here's a woman with a fascinating life who lost a child uh, while pregnant because of an IRA bomb as a Catholic woman in the North and who gave birth to her first child in the bush uh, while she was on a missionary thing, which a lot of Irish people do and uh, to work with poor people in Africa. And, and she gave a marvelous reflection on a very rich life in the church that was neither liberal nor conservative. It was just heartfelt. She's a lawyer and a law professor, and she's tough as nails intellectually and otherwise. And in the middle of it, she said, and I think women will be priests someday. And she said, I could be wrong about this. And of course, it follows from the fact that if women will be priests, that they can be priests. And I knew there was a reporter there from the tablet, which is a big British Catholic journal. Like the one thing the reporter is going to tweet out from this is Baroness alone calls for women priests. 
which she wasn't actually calling for it. She was predicting it. And she does believe in it, but she was making like the mildest claim for it that you could. So first of all, I think a reasonable, faithful Catholic like Baroness alone is allowed to say what she said. Do I think now is the time for it? I certainly don't uh, for, for this reason. Let's go back to your earlier point. It's not just a church in North America. It's not just a church in Northern Europe. In fact, the vibrant growing parts of the church are African and South American and indeed Asian. The church Christianity is growing quickly in China, though your, your numbers were not inaccurate. So we have to respect in epistemic humility, uh, even if we have confidence that they're gonna come around to our point of view, that this is a worldwide church and not everywhere in the world is as ready for women priests. If it's true and Baroness alone and you are correct that someday there will be women priests, no, now is not necessarily the time. I am not the Pope, and I've learned not to try to tell other people how to do their jobs, right? And so if it's the Pope's job to decide when, there are all kinds of decent reasons you can give why now is not them. I've just given you one, which is they're not ready for it in large parts of the world, even if it's the thing that in the fullness of time is going to become true. So uh, the church is small c conservative, and rightly so. It changes very slowly, in response to social change, because not all social change goes in a direction that we would like, right? Early progressivism in the United States moved in a eugenic way. Nobody today thinks Buck versus Bell was, was good work, but it was by a person who was a progressive and a really smart person, right? So, um, so given that human trends, when there's a flux, our ideas of gender are in flux. The things you and I could say to one another, uh, and would say in the best of faith about the person yesterday, a celebrity I don't know, who is now Elliot and was, I believe, Ellen. What you and I would have said about that as two uh, cis white men who, who are, I presume, uh, right, in 1980, you and I know we wouldn't say things that today would be the same things 10 years and 15 years. So when those situations are changing just in 20 years, and then you add into the whole world, that's just in 20 years in the United States where we have a relatively homogeneous conversation. It's not something that I think could or should happen today, even if we wanna talk about the reasonableness of, of how it got to where it is. So that, boys, I wish we had another hour because um, we could talk about that answer for an hour. We have like 10 minutes, I think, left of your, but that, so Judge Pope, retired Judge Posner and I had an interesting conversation Directly on point to this one, I think, in, in a separate place. Um, after he had written his opinion um, invalidating Indiana and Wisconsin's, I think, same-sex marriage bans, whatever it was, he, he, struck, he wrote an opinion striking down same-sex marriage bans. Literally the day after it came out, we had a long phone conversation about the case. And he said to me one of the things that was on his mind the entire time, because you know, he wrote a Law Review article in 1997 – saying that bans on same-sex marriage are obviously constitutional and who would think otherwise responding to um, Bill Eskridge at Yale, you know. Um, he said to me, Eric, when did, when did you – so first he said, when did you think same-sex marriage should be con constitutionally protected? Like, because you didn't 15 years ago. There's no way you thought that 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, and anyway, I answered the question and he, and, 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 I, and he said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the question Scalia asked Ted Olson. When did this all change? Because clearly I asked that question at, at, at the uh, Prop 8 case. But then Posner gave me an answer as to why he did what he did. That's directly relevant to, I think, our conversation about women. His ideas of right and wrong, protected, not protected, 
legal, not legal, changed, obviously. And part of that change was the kind of moral question about it. Like, he was very concerned about the kids of – he was very concerned about the kids of gay couples who couldn't get married and how – and he thought it was wrong. Like, it was wrong for those kids to be humiliated at school. You know, just wrong. But it was basically a smell test. You know, it changed when, when what seemed okay is now wrong. And it seems to me – your, your argument about women in other parts of the world, that's the reason why the Catholic Church should accept women as priests right now. You could kill kind of two birds with one stone with that idea, that, that no, you, you in, in parts of the world where women don't have equal rights, they should have equal rights, and we're going to role model that for you because it's the right thing to do. But the Catholic Church is in all parts of the world, Eric, and there's a, it, it's not meant to be chauvinistic because the, the priests uh, and the theologians who largely hold the reins of power are from the North and the West, but as we use those, those terms, right, culturally. Uh, and so all I'm saying is one of the things the Pope has to do is hold this whole thing together. We believe he does so in a prayerful way under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So if one wants to say, well, why would God not want there to be women priests today? Why wasn't it clearer to the church that it should be loving to gays in the 1930s as opposed to the 1990s? That's an interesting question, and you know we're all going to have lots of questions to take to God on that great waking up morning, and 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 we can talk about whether there are plausible answers God could give. I, I antecedently think the likelihood is strong, and one of those plausible answers is that if you decide that you're a prophetic person, how to be prophetic, and how to bring people along. Again, assuming the truth of that, which I don't assume. I think it's a very hard question because. The nature of the priesthood is bound up in that question. We could talk for hours about why it's complicated whether women should be priests and when not disagree at all about the equal dignity of women. Um, I'm not sure that's true, Father. I'm sorry. I'm not sure that's true, but go ahead. I'm not saying we'll come to agreement in the end about whether women should be priests. I'm just saying there's a ton of agreement that you and I would have. There's no part of what I think would be true of any acceptable version of women not being priests that has to do with their being of lesser dignity, right? And to the extent it looks as if this is a sexist teaching as it's lived, to go back to your earlier point, Christians don't seem to live in a way that I would want to be one. Uh, that isn't exactly what you said, but it would be yeah, yeah, close enough, said, close enough. Right? Um, uh, then the first thing we have to do is live and understand the priesthood correctly because it's not supposed to be about power. It's not supposed to be that I have greater dignity or authority than another person. So if, if we get that right, then we can ask the question, and who's supposed to be one? And if we're living it in such a way that it is showing other people to be of lesser dignity, that's the first problem, because it, it is an inescapably true thing that women and men are of equal dignity, and that's, that's a given in our tradition. And so, yeah, is, is that a, does that mean that we have to face a question? Okay, if that's true, then why can't uh, women be priests? Sure, I, I will grant you that. And then we could talk about the various things that could have justified. It is interesting that John Paul II didn't think that any of the proposed answers were as important as the history. Jesus was willing to break boundaries with women, right? He sat next to a Samaritan woman at a well, and he had a conversation with her that would have looked scandalous by the period of his time. A sinful woman came and washed his feet with her hair. I mean, imagine if that happened here as you and I are talking. A bunch of Catholics would say, that priest needs to be thrown out, right? Um, so he took all these liberties, including across gender bounds, and he didn't pick a woman as an apostle. 
So someone like John Paul looks at that and says, geez, if he didn't do that, then, then I'm not sure it's my role to do that. That's one way of understanding the thing that you tweeted out, right? The historical role. Um, and so, so there is a, a, a story about that. Um, there is also a very complicated, it's not complicated entirely in a direction that's favorable to the church, but it's not nearly as unfavorable to the church, perhaps as some outside of it might realize, of women having enormous advancement in the church and the church being far more feminist historically than Protestant culture, at least, right? The, the Enlightenment in, in its reviving of classical ideals was far worse for women in the Christian West than medieval Christianity was. Think about uh, Francis Xavier Cabrini. You've heard of Cabrini Green for all kinds of reasons in Chicago. Why is there a place called Cabrini Green? It's to honor a woman who built a network of hospitals and who, who chartered a tradition in the 1900s, uh, rather in the 20th century, um, of women being CEOs, strong, powerful women running businesses as women religious in the church, who also doubtless were treated in sexist and dismissive fashion by many men in the church, but whom canon law said, in the end, they get to run their own communities, and that means they get to build their own hospitals and their own schools and their own universities. That's a weird mix of a church that both honored them and gave them power that they weren't getting from secular society, even as it doubtless treated them in ways that were sexist. I don't want to paint a rosy picture of the Middle Ages or a rosy picture of 1920, but neither was it univocally sexist and dim and grim. An image that is in my brain that I can't get out, and this predated our discussion today, uh, my wife and I have been watching the last season of The Crown, and there's a um, uh, Margaret Thatcher plays a major role in that. I have no idea how accurate. I don't, really don't know how accurate it is. She comes off very poorly, but there are but there are constant scenes of her making dinner, cooking dinner for other other members of Parliament or or whoever, mm-hmm. and she viewed that as her role. Was you know, um, I, I, you don't get the sense because she loves cooking. You get the sense it's because she thinks that's the appropriate role in their household that she cooks, um, and that's kind of how I feel a little bit about little girls, uh, little Catholic girls, who are told, no matter. Now I'm really talking about even overseas. No, you're never going to be a priest. You're never going to be pope. You're never going to be eligible for those positions, and it mm-hmm. feels like in the here and now. That that does – I mean I, Orthodox Jews are, are much worse than Catholics are about this because Orthodox Jews don't even let them you know, have careers. Um, all of that is so upsetting to me uh, and it makes me want to turn away from people of faith because if women and men really are of equal dignity, then they should be mm-hmm. eligible. A woman good enough to play for the Steelers should be allowed to play for the Steelers. A woman good Again, enough to be – First of all, I, I, think it's, I think it's possible that that is where the church will land. Okay. I said I have said that we shouldn't be seeing the pope as a CEO. Right. The priesthood is really meant to be seen as the servant of the servants of God. Right. Um, the, well, I forget which pope off the top of my head. Um, uh, Catholics will think I'm terrible at my church <laughs> history. Who said the slave of the slaves of God. Right. And if the priesthood is being lived primarily, and I understand why people say that it is. It is a failure on the part of priests and bishops that too often we lord it over people. Jesus is pretty clear on this point. Don't be lording it over people. Right. And we continually fail at the things that he told us because they're really hard. And uh, the first thing to do is to understand that it, it shouldn't be seen as excluding people from a role of power. It should be seen if it is defensible. It's going to be defended either on that purely historical role, the thing that you tweeted out, 
Or, you know, again, this is by way of analogy, it's imperfect and we don't have a lot of time, but, you know, uh, we know that women can be great soldiers, right? St. Joan of Arc. Of course. We know that women can be but we, we, there was a traditional chivalrous way of thinking that like men are expendable, even from a biological evolutionary point of view, right sure. there. So throw the men into the trenches in World War One to honor women, not because we don't think women are strong. That's one way of thinking about what the priesthood is supposed to be. These are the po- folks who are just supposed to throw themselves out there. Motherhood and other roles for women are more important and more exalted. So there are ways of understanding how that purification of this teaching goes that might not land in women priests, even if there are ways that might. Okay. That's the way I think of it as a historically contingent thing in the limited amount of time that we have. Okay. That is a very and, tough and I certainly I don't think Catholic it's... girls should be raised or are being raised by and large. No, the most traditional Catholic families I know are, the women are extraordinarily strong. I was chatting with a Catholic philosopher friend of mine. His wife has a PhD. Yes, she has stayed home to raise the kids by her choice. I think we have to honor that that's the choice she made as a woman who got a PhD and wasn't making a choice then about how she was going to live. John does all the cooking. They have an extraordinary partnership that if you factor out that they're both really conservative Catholics, they would look like a lot of academic couples. And, um, and you know, Catholic girls growing up in traditional homes are getting a lot of that. They are seeing that Mary is as, every bit as much the head of that household as John that she is a saintly woman and a strong woman and a brave right. woman. And, I, and that is how girls have to be raised, and ir- irrespective of where that lands. I totally yeah, agree yeah I, I agree with all of that, and I think choice is very important. I have to ask you one last question, um, and, and hope the whoever's listening to this bears with the length of it. Because um, I know th- this, this doesn't have an easy answer, so I'd ask you to give the best answer you can in a limited period. So from the moment I was reflective about faith, which predated my bar mitzvah, probably 11 or 12 or so. Um, I could never personally, I think there are a lot of people listening to this who might sympathize with this. I'm agnostic because I can't reconcile evil with God. And I know the literature is, you know, abundant. But I, I, and when when it comes to this, specifically the Catholic faith, the idea that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good seems inconsistent with all the data we have. (laughs) Um, it's inconsistent with Hitler. It's inconsistent with 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 um, all kinds of evil dictators throughout history, with floods, pandemics. It's just inconsistent with all of that. The, the shorter way of saying that is why can't it be heaven all the time? If there's a heaven, why can't it be now? And that's really why I don't have faith, that problem right there. Because the, the, the thought of a God who could change it but doesn't want to is too frightening for me. I, I, he allows Hitler— to exist, or she allows Hitler to exist, I can't live with that God. <laughs> help me, Father, in five minutes. Give me a five-minute help here. <laughs> um, you're, you have a Jewish background. There's a joke I'll give you really quickly. It's a joke about three kinds of atheists. One is an Anglican atheist, the other a Jewish atheist, the other a Catholic atheist. Uh, the Anglican atheist uh, says, I've read a lot of Bertrand Russell. I've thought analytically through these categories. I And I cannot reconcile um, the problem of evil as an analytic matter, I, yeah. as you sort of laid it out there. Yeah. So there is no God. The Jewish person says, um, I look at history and I cannot worship the God who allowed that. A little bit like what you said. Yeah. And the Catholic says, you won't believe what Father said to me last week. Right? Um, notice that only two of the, only one of these is, a, is what we would call a philosophical atheist. That's the Anglican. Uh, the Jewish person is the one who wrestles with history, and it was true even before, you know, the Shoah, right? Do even before the 20th century. Sure. That 
that the Jewish wrestling with God goes back to Jacob in the scripture, right? And um, and then the Catholic version is is this heavily clericalized church. So if God, if Father made me angry, that must mean there's no value, which which speaks to a genuine phenomenon and a defect of how the priesthood has been lived in the ways we were discussing. So that pulls together some of our themes, wasn't a complete digression. So what to say about the problem of evil? I mean, there is a philosophical answer that we could talk about for hours on the question of, of free will, right? The traditional way of saying this is um, God made a universe with free creatures and those free creatures in their freedom bring a beauty and a richness and a goodness which is why that was an act of love, even though God being omniscient knew that some of those creatures would be like Hitler or um, uh, who, who the Belgian king, King Leopold, right? Horrible, vicious people responsible for the deaths of millions, Mao Zedong, Stalin, pick, pick your poison. The alternative is, oh, if Eric were God, he would have made us all robots where none of us could do that sort of thing. But we look at the world and say, well, what's the fun of robots? No, I would have, like, no, 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 Father, no. I would have made I, heaven all the time. Whatever heaven is, I would have made that all the time. Uh, right, but, but, you, but you say, oh, but heaven would be free people who only chose to do good things. Well, then in what sense are they free? Oh, no, heaven can't have free people in it because if they're free, they're going to hurt each other. That's, that is the fundamental question. Yeah. But it's, to me, it collapses on itself because the problem of evil is, is, is a, the alternative of the problem of good. There can only be good in a way that is interesting, not if it exists as a computer program where I've, I've made a little city and everything in that city treats each other well, because I know that's a computer program, it's not real life. The real life in which we tangle and wrestle with the possibility of God is one in which we know genuine goodness and it isn't fake. It is freely chosen and freely engaged. And the price of freely chosen love is the possibility of freely rejected love. I get that, Father. That is a difficult and a high price, but it is the traditional answer. And I think that the person who says, well, I won't believe in God because of the fact of evil, my big view, and we can do this in another discussion, whether for your show or just privately uh, on Zoom with other of our friends, which I'd love to do, um, the problem of good uh, is... Our belief, yours and mine, that certain things matter a lot, things that you and I would agree about, the equal dignity of human beings, even if the contours of what that looked like on particular questions we would disagree about, that that only makes sense in a universe that is more interesting than the one envisioned by Kantian morality, more interesting to be sure than the one envisioned by the later John Rawls, and, uh, and can only be understood if we accept our creatureliness, yeah, right? And, and, and I don't claim any originality in that. You read Milton, what does Satan say in Milton? When is this time when we were created? And people say, oh no, you don't need that father. You just need T.M. Scanlon and his contractualism. We just need a set of rules that all reasonable people would have to assent to. Except who made us assent to reason, right? Nietzsche foresaw Scanlon and, and uh, his thin version of morality and said, I, I, you gave me a, a hint of what we were gonna talk about, so if you don't mind, and, and I know we wanna stop, but I'll give you this little bit from Nietzsche because it's so good. Uh, I love teaching Nietzsche. It's the problem of the value of truth came before us. Why not rather untruth, says Nietzsche. It finally seems also to us as if the problem had never been put so far as if we were the first to see it. So Nietzsche gave us this problem. My book will devote some, some good time to Nietzsche. But Nietzsche clarifies for believer and unbeliever alike what is at stake. 
And uh, as Dostoevsky does, in my view, without God, all things are possible. So you can't argue against Hitler without God in the view of Nietzsche and in the view of, uh, and I'm not saying Nietzsche's Hitler, right? That was bad stuff from his sister and bad. Uh, Nietzsche's a genius. And, in, and what he does for us is to clarify for us what's at stake. You know, Pope Benedict XVI, back in the 1960s, wrote a book called Introduction to Christianity. And in it, he said the human condition might, by, might be likened as this. Um, uh, Eric and Bill, an agnostic and believer talking to each other, and the nagging thought in the back of their heads, what if the other guy's right? Uh, as a believer, I certainly uh, sympathize with many of these questions and wrestle with them. That is the nature of belief. I think the Jewish faith as lived by Jewish people and Jewish teachers and Jewish rabbis and the Hebrew scriptures tells us that faith is a wrestling and wrestling with doubt is included in that. And that's the sense in which I think there are answers to your questions, but they are not answers in the form of demonstration. They are not like a Euclidean geom geometric proof. They're the kinds of things we can keep talking about for years. That's, I think that's a I guess as good an answer as I've ever heard, Father. So um, I usually let my guests have the last word, but I actually I'll let, you, I'll let you have the last word. But I want to say one thing first. Uh, I, and first, thanks for coming on. Um, the, the, I really appreciate it, and I've really enjoyed it, and I've learned. Um, the reason I'm agnostic, as opposed to being an atheist, um, is I have to say that I have this. There's a line in Les Miserables that that I, I, I is in my head all the time. I mean, the whole musical is in my head all the time. I think it's one of the great works of art of our time. But to to love another person to love another person is to see the face of God. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I'm I'm lucky in my love life, very lucky. And um, that gives me pause. Like that sentence gives me pause because whatever love the love I feel for my family um, and my closest friends feels sometimes more than human. Is that the right way to put that? I'm going to try to put that. But something is going on there that I can't explain. I guess that's what I would say. And if I can't explain that, then there are a lot of things I can't explain. And that's where I, that's where I like to approach things with humility. I hope I've done that in this conversation. Um, you have, and that's a beautiful uh, formulation of something I believe that I hope to elaborate on in the book. And I will steal a title. He's making a different point in his short story. But Graham Greene has a short story called A Hint of an Explanation. And if you were to ask me why I am not an agnostic, I would give, in some ways, the same answer you gave about the love that you have encountered and the possibility that you have seen the face of God, to borrow your line. It is the hint of an explanation. And it's a beautiful place to end. And I thank you and am honored by the invitation. Uh, Father, thank you so much. This has been great. And we may, I may ask you to do this again because I, I have a lot more questions. <laughs> I'd be um, happy to. Thank you, Father. Really appreciate it.